Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. I've dreaded some recent get-togethers knowing argumentative political conversations are going to be on the agenda. And for quite some time, I've taken the approach that it's better to avoid these conversations by staying quiet and giving a friendly nod. That line of thinking is changing for me now. Avoiding participation in these conversations is foregoing the opportunity to learn something new, maybe even change my mind. Along with that, if I'm not taking the time or initiative to understand someone else's viewpoint, I'm only reinforcing this current state of divisiveness between these binary camps of blue and red. I invited Corey Nathan on the podcast to give us some inspiration on how this could be done right. He shares his personal story of making amends with his dad when he decided to leave the Jewish faith. In the second half of this episode, Corey shares some basic communication skills to help us have more enabling conversations. Some of my favorites include the feel, felt, found framework, the phrase, help me understand, and changing our mindset from competition to collaboration. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the stockbroker by day, theater guy by night, Jew from Jersey that became a Christian, and the host of the incredible podcast, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, Corey Nathan. Corey, I'm super stoked for our conversation today. This has been a longstanding topic that I've wanted to cover on the podcast for quite some time. I feel like with this current political climate and the contentiousness that I see in my own life when discussing polarizing topics like politics and religion, I've been really wanting to explore how to have expressive yet respectful conversations around these topics. And I hope that, you know, we'll obviously dive into some de-escalation conversations, some how to see similarities in our debates, which will pop up pretty early on, I think, in your conversation how do you change your opinion and, and maybe even someone else's opinion? But I thought there'd be no one better to discuss this topic with than the Jew from Jersey that became a Christian, which we will explore that label a little <laughs> bit more. But, but Corey, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks, Justin. I, I really, really appreciate you doing this. It's, a, it's an honor to be hanging out with you. You know, I, I'm looking forward to the conversation. So thanks for, thanks for including me. Let's start out with a man named Hal. Tell me who Hal is and what Hal did to challenge your religious views. Hal Golden. So I, I was doing some business with this fellow. He really great guy. And he, he was, uh, he's probably about 15, maybe 20 years older than me, but I was just, I was in my late twenties and I was just coming into my own from a business standpoint. Uh, I had just gotten married. We were thinking about having kids. So I was looking for mentorship. I was looking for, folks that I thought were crushing it in business, that were good dads, good husbands, good in the community. So I befriended Hal and really allowed myself to be super, super teachable. I wanted to know what he knew and the things that I thought were really important. And Hal was gracious enough to give me all kinds of books and uh, pointed me to seminars and, and had these tapes that I listened to all the time. It was just like how to be a better person at everything, better at all the things that, that was important to me. Um, but what I, one thing I noticed was he was giving me all these, what I call Jesus books. <laughs> so he, um, you know, they were, they were all like scripturally based. They were authors that were all Christians. 
and it had all this scripture referenced in, in the books that he was, he was giving me. Uh, and, and no matter what the topic, it could have been on business. It could have been on, you know, our country. It could have been on better marriages, being a better dad. It could have been on anything, but it was all Jesus books. And the thing about how is I, at the time of observant Jew, I grew up very observantly Jewish, uh, going to an Orthodox synagogue, uh, you know, observed all the hot, we were still, you know, I was still observant and, um, it, but Hal had grown up Jewish, but he had become a Christian. So I thought how having been Jewish would have respected my boundaries because I wasn't just Jewish. I was sort of anti-Christian, you know, the, the, the Christians were the ones wearing crosses on their chests that swung swords and beheaded the neighbors of my grandmother, you know, <laughs> or burned down our house. And is the reason that we had to leave Cherniostrov in Russia or, or, you know, the Christians and Jews didn't always have a cozy relationship. Let's yes. put it that way. And even, even when I was growing up in the Northeast, it, it was um, at the very least, there were tensions politically and socially. Um, so I had these sort of cultural aspects of my DNA that, that were averse to what I knew about Christianity. So finally, one day I asked how about, I, I wanted to take him to task over it. I, you know, I, I got to know him well enough. We had a, a real friendship. I said, wow, what's up with you, man? Like you were, you were in the tribe, you know, you were on my team and now you're on the other team. Like, what's up with you? So <laughs> he responded by giving me a book. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew by the title that it was another Jesus book. It was called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Little book. It took me about three hours to read it, but I knew, I, and I, I called him out. I'm like, dude, what, what's up, man? Like, I'm kind of calling you out on this Christian thing. And your response is by giving me a stinking Jesus book. And he goes, listen, here's the thing. You know, you know what it means to be Jewish. I know what it means to be Jewish. I know what it means to be Christian, but you don't have the first clue what it means to be a Christian. So at the very least, just be intellectually honest and, and read the book. At least we'll have something to talk about. So <laughs> I'll read your stinking book. I read it, you know, and, and um, it, I didn't find it persuasive. Uh, that, that I could tell. It wasn't one of those things where I read it and I'm like, oh, epiphany, oh, I'm going to be a Christian now. It was more like I, I was taken aback because I'd never read someone even try to make an empirical case for the life, death and, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So I'm like, I am thoroughly unconvinced, but tell me more, <laughs> you know? Hmm. So Hal recommended a few other books. And then I started looking on my own. Basically what that encounter did was it opened the door. And because I had very deep convictions, philosophically, theologically, uh, fr from my Jewish heritage, uh, I, I, I was just inquisitive. I thought, man, if, if I'm going to explore these other, this other possibility, I really need to be, I guess you could say pluralistic about it. So I, I began looking at other world philosophies for, you know, I had intro to it and I was always very inquisitive. I had deep existential questions that I, I felt the need to explore throughout my twenties, but never to this extent in the next six months, eight months, I, I just had this voracious reading habit. I was reading easily six, eight, 10 hours a day, uh, just, you know, from Buddhism to Zoroastrianism to, uh, philosophical cases, philosophical debates and, it, it really led me down this road where finally I, this, this whole time I hadn't read the new Testament. And finally about six or eight months into it, 
I cracked open the book. And at that point I circled back with Hal. I'm like, Hal, I, I, a lot of the basic questions that I had, I was starting to see a coherence and just a consistency with some of the Christian theological answers uh, from what I was reading. I was reading a lot of C.S. Lewis. I was first introduced to uh, G.K. Chesterton and um, N.T. Wright, some, some great theologians and thinkers. And it was just becoming more coherent, basic answers to basic existential questions. But I hadn't read the New Testament. So I asked Hal, is there a place where I, you think I should start at the beginning or where do you? So he told me to start in a book of James. Sorry, this is becoming a much longer no, story. Go for it. Um, I, he told me to start in the book of James, James, which was really strategic of him because the, it starts with something along the lines of to the 12 tribes, blah, 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 you know, and the 12 tribes, that's me. I'm like, Hey, how you doing? I'm a Jew. Like you're talking <laughs> to me. Um, so, uh, and it also, that particular letter deals with some of the questions that I had that weren't lining up for me. Like the faith versus works is a big theme that, that James explores in that book. Uh, so I read through it. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And at that point, I decided to go to the beginning of the collection called the New Testament. I uh, started in Matthew 1. And literally within about, I don't know, a half hour, I got to Matthew 5. And I read this piece. Jesus is giving what I recognized as a Devar Torah, uh, which in, in Judaism, you read from the Torah, the for one of the first five books. It's, uh, you know, it's the main, the main, the main thing in Judaism. Uh, and, and the rabbi typically gives, when you read a Parsha, a portion of the Torah, the rabbi typically gives a Devar Torah, like a, an interpretation or explanation, a teaching on, on what you had just read. So Jesus is giving what I recognize as Devar Torah in math, starting in Matthew 5 and goes on for a few chapters, or it's, as it's you know written. Um, and I'm thinking, man, this is the most brilliant Devar Torah I'd ever read or heard. It just it's, it came at it from a completely different perspective that wasn't really it, some some of what he was dealing with is discussed in some of the debates that you see in the Talmud. But it was just something completely different. And what I had realized later on was I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> so anyway, uh, long story, really long story short, I at that point, I just continued reading through the New Testament. By the time I got to Revelation 22. I was pretty sure that I was going to do this thing, you know, whatever this thing was. And, uh, and, uh, I, I called Hal. I'm like, all right, Hal. So if I'm going to do this like Christian thing, like what's the prayer? <laughs> and he goes, what do you mean? What's a prayer? I'm like, well, you know, there's a prayer for the bread, for the wine, for the washing of the hands. What's the prayer for like the Jesus prayer. He goes, no, man, you just talk to God. I'm like, come on. No, there's got to be like a bruch, a tad, a sham. There's got to be like a prayer. He's like, no, no, no. Just talk to God. Just like tell him what's on your heart. So three in the morning, whether it was that night or the next night, I can't remember. But uh, shortly thereafter, I, I talked to God, like stumbling over myself. Uh, God, I, I'm not sure if I need an appointment or, you know, like, <laughs> I was just like totally stumbling over myself. But I tried to um, have a conversation with God for the first time in a non-regimented way. Uh, you know, and the next morning I, I looked at Miss Lisa, my, my lovely bride, uh, we were married. How long? I think we were only about married for two or three years at that point. And I said, Lisa, I think I'm a Christian. And the first thing she says is she's from the South. She says, if you think I'm going to church every Sunday, you got another thing coming. <laughs> so she was not, 
she was not too happy about it. She later became a Christian, but she wasn't too happy about it. And then uh, about a month after that was Thanksgiving, I had to go home and tell my family I became a Christian. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's put a pin on that real quick. So I can I can um, explore a couple other things that got brought up in there. Really curious on how with actually where where were you with your faith at that time? Because it seems like Hal was pushing you to at least explore Christianity, if not maybe more so than that. Did he sense that you were needed some guidance in the spirituality piece of your life, or why do you think he was guiding you there and not? you know, maybe sticking to entrepreneurship and fatherhood and some of the other things that you were directly seeking from him. It's interesting that he pursued it because he knew that I was very, very teachable in all these other areas. But he also knew that to the extent that they were pushing Jesus on me or Christianity on me, I be, my convictions as a Jew became much more deeply rooted. I dug my heels in like, what are you doing, man? Like, I got my beliefs. Like, don't force your beliefs on me. So I, I don't know. I think it was his evangelical impulse or, or maybe his evangelical training. But he, he wasn't, he was only one piece of a much larger puzzle. Uh, you know, not, not to get too spiritual about it, but I, I think, or too mystical about it. But I, I, if you believe in God or you believe in sovereignty, I think God has a way of, putting circumstances and people in your life, uh, some of whom you're coming in contact with, some of whom are just praying for you, you know, that all line up to either chip away at a heart of stone or, you know, ultimately sink you if you're, if you're fighting against that wave, if you're fighting against that tide. So I, I think that it's more that that's what it was that there were all kinds of things lining up to, and, and for me, looking back, it wasn't all, all that I had learned. It wasn't so much that I was, I was, I was abandoning my faith or abandoning my family, my filial obligation, everything that I had believed. It was, to me, it was much more like I was evolving it, um, taking the next step, you know, certain things, made more sense as a next chapter in the larger story. Mm. I, I don't know if that makes sense. No, I think, I think that does make a lot of sense. And I, I see that in your storyline. So to get back to Thanksgiving, I believe it was Thanksgiving, either 2000 or 2001, about 20 years ago, we'll put it yeah. at that. Yeah. You had to, you decided you were going to become a Christian and you had to tell your parents about this. And yeah. I'm really interested what your feelings were going into that conversation, because I, I, I think I need to put some context here. There was more significance to this than just telling your parents, like, I no longer want to play baseball. You, someone would have to understand that, that the history of Judaism in your family and some of the like immediate religious persecution that you were, your family was not that far removed from. So what, what was the anticipation and, and feelings that were going through walking off the plane and, and getting ready to tell your parents that you're a born again Christian? Yeah, I knew that there was anything that I could have told them, literally anything that I could have told them that would have been less difficult than this. I could have told them that, 
I, the first thing that came to I could have told them that I'm gay. Mm -hmm. I could have told them that I'm a Buddhist. I could have told them that I'm a convicted felon. I could have told there's any, I'm, I'm on drugs. I don't know. I could have told them anything and they would have received it with less animosity than this. That's what I was anticipating. And that, that did bear itself out in, in, in a lot of ways. So yeah, I, I knew that it wasn't going to be well received, but I thought that I had done <laughs> to say I'd done my homework before I had made this decision is quite an understatement. So I thought I'd done enough homework to have substance behind a, it wasn't even a decision. It was more like a revelation, you know? So I knew that I'd be able to have that conversation as long as they were willing to have it. I was also willing to be ostracized or disowned or whatever the consequences might be, because I knew that what I had believed was true. Mm -hmm. Not that I was right. It, was, it wasn't a matter of me being right. It was that it was true. And this was the next step for me. So I was willing to deal with whatever I had to deal with. And, you know, my dad and I had a um, one type of interaction. My mom and I had a very different interaction yeah. about it. So Let, let's go into those two. So you're right. Very, very polar opposites in this case. So you, I believe it was like a two hour conversation on your porch with your dad, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was a long conversation and we flew a red eye that night. So it was Thanksgiving morning. So I was pretty bleary eyed at that point. I was... I was more, frankly, I was more nervous about flying because I'm just a, not a good flyer <laughs> than it was about the conversation with my dad. And we ended up having a two hour conversation. He, he was a guidance counselor most of his career, mm. a high school guidance counselor. So I anticipated that he, what kind of framework the conversation or uh, feel the conversation would have. And it went that way. He was very analytical about it. He had questions. He wasn't confrontational yet. So I just spelled it out for him and answered every one of his questions. Uh, his, his more confrontational uh, engagement came about a month later. The, the letter, the 10-page single-spaced letter spelling out all of the reasons why I can't become a Christian, emotional, spiritual, theological, philosophical, political, family, all these different things that was the start of a conversation of a much, much, much years long conversation. Yeah. But that morning after my dad, uh, after like we were winding down a conversation, Ronnie, my dad goes, uh, you got to go in and tell your mother. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, all right. So I just, I went in, I wasn't going to have another two hour conversation. That's just not the kind of relationship my mother and I had. So I, I, she was on the computer in her, you know, and, uh, I just, I just rolled out with it. I'm like, mom, I don't know how to say it. So I'm just going to say it. I became a Christian and Phyllis was typing and uh, it was almost like her hands kind of floated. They were still in the typing movements and, and they floated and she floated into the other room practically. And she was just sort of dazed. So I followed her into the other room. I'm like, mom, I, I don't know if you heard me. I became a Christian. <laughs> and the first thing she says is, I'm sorry. I just never thought I'd have a son. And she didn't quite have the words. And the first, she goes, I never thought I'd have a son who was walking with Jesus. <laughs> so, so and, then, and then she goes, she yells into the other room. She goes, Ronnie, do hast? 
which is uh, it's a Yiddish for like, um, are you hearing this? Did you hear? Do hast? Our son is a born again Republican. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she had a very different reaction. It was uh, I think maybe somebody heard it and created a character on a sitcom about her. So I don't know. That and she, is, yeah, she's, that, she's more hilarious. <laughs> yeah. We we've had a tense relationship on and off throughout my life. Uh, but when I remember that she really is kind of a sitcom ish character, that's when uh, things go a little bit better for us. Like she, it's not, she, she's funny. She doesn't mean to be, but she's freaking hilarious. So <laughs> that's awesome. So as you mentioned, your dad wrote you this 10 page single spaced letter, um, what was the initial response to that? How did you reply to that letter? I had to process it because there was so much to process. But after a while, I decided to take it paragraph by paragraph, if not sentence by sentence, and just respond one, one piece at a time. And when I started responding to one piece, I would get a response from him to that response, which I then have to respond to. So we had all these different threads going. And it was, it was a solid three years and, and it was tense. Those first two or three years was very, very tense. Um, but it was, it was helpful in a way because it, it forced me to really think things through some of the things that he said, I, I had to listen, admittedly, I, I think I was going at it from a more contentious, albeit lovingly contentious. Mm -hmm. I was trying to be kind and gentle about it, but I had an agenda. I wanted to prove, I wanted to prove my point. Yeah. And so a lot of what I was doing was looking for evidence or looking for backup of what my point of view was, as opposed to hearing what he was fully hearing what he was saying and having much more of an open dialogue about it. It, but as our conversation evolved, and it became less about me winning an argument and more about the relationship, I think it became much more rich and nuanced. Yeah. So, you know, and, and he was doing the same thing too. I think he was trying to win a debate or, you know, convince me to wave off this whole Christian thing. So, you know, but over time it became much more about uh, a, enriching the relationship, deepening each other's knowledge and understanding of philosophy and theology and important, how we might answer important questions. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is we started out at such a, so far apart on really important things. And once we, once we prioritized the relationship, as opposed to winning a debate, we realized how much closer together we were on really important things. You know, just to give you one example, uh, he, his view of Jesus, when we first started out <laughs> can be summed up by a treatise he sent me by, uh, kind of an obnoxious Jewish scholar or rabbi, I guess he, he would call him, uh, and the treatise was entitled, you take Jesus, I'll take God. It was so dismissive and so snarky in a uniquely sort of Jewish scholarly way. <laughs> um, so, but his view of Jesus had evolved over the years to where, I think he would say now, you know, obviously this is decades later, but he would say now that Jesus was what might be referred to as a tzaddik, uh, like a great rabbi of his generation. He would even say that Jesus should have been a, 
a Jewish uh, prophet in, in the tradition of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, like a, a legitimate Jewish prophet. And he even says that, <laughs> very nuanced, he even says that Jesus was a um, Messiah candidate. But here, here's, the, here's the thing. He says he was a failed Messiah candidate, but the failure wasn't his. It was the people of Israel. So that's really specific, really nuanced. If you if you're interested in this kind of thing, it's like, oh wow, that's it. You, that's real. Like obviously, a Christian would say, no, he was Messiah um, and uh, Son of God and all that stuff. But I think from, I think going from you take Jesus, I'll take God to that answer, you know, the Jesus as Messiah candidate and the failure wasn't his. Um. That that's a that's that's an interesting nuanced perspective that I, I have to respect, you know. No doubt, and it's really interesting to see how that conversation developed. You know, it really got to a place, and you were telling me this that you guys realized what you both thought was true had more similarities than differences, and there might be some small nuances in your guys's thoughts, but ultimately, you believe in so much of the same thing. And I think the conversation really turned that direction because your dad and, and I'm guessing you prioritized the relationship and, re- and woke up one day and realized my relationship with my son is more important than the faith that my son observes. Is that correct? I think that's fair to say. I think he saw that as maybe not tertiary, maybe isn't the right way to, to put it, but there were other things that were more important than where, where I worshiped, you know, uh, frankly, I think there were other aspects of our Christian community where we were going to church that he objected to more, even, even more than the, the Jesus thing. What do you mean? You know, as he, as he was evolving his view of Jesus, he was also seeing certain things about the Christian community that I was a part of that were more objectionable specifically and if you fast forward now into 2016 and 2020, uh, what the American evangelical community has become, there were the seeds of that, the roots of that, you could see as early as 2004, 2006, 2008. I'm, I'm marking it by like election years because yep. that's the easiest way to, to think of it. But like uh, there were people in my in my um, that, that I went to church with that believed things that just didn't line up with what the Bible was saying. And and it it really, my kids were going to a Christian school and there, there were flashpoints. There were moments when this became much more obvious, you know, like, um, I, I went to, uh, I went to, a a a worship service and the, the pastor was teaching on, it was just, overtly speaking on immigration. And he was using a chapter from Leviticus to make his anti-immigration point. And I'm like, dude, you, you haven't read this chapter. Like you, he was using a, a piece of a verse from the top of the chapter in order to make an anti-immigration political statement. But the end, of, if you ever read the end of the chapter, it's like, the, it's basically, you know, the Bible saying, you if y'all really do have a policy position, it should be an open border policy, you know? So I'm not necessarily fully open borders, but like, that's what that chapter was. And there were a lot of things just like that, that were explicitly 
instances when well-meaning, well-intentioned Christian friends of mine were putting their preferences, their social or political preferences first, and then backing scripture into it. And when scripture didn't line up with it, it was being dismissed. And I think my dad saw some of that when, because I, I, you know, he'd, he'd meet a bunch of, of friends from church, some of whom he's still really, really good friends with, but others he just couldn't take very seriously and found a, a level of hypocrisy there. So, but that's a whole other, um, <laughs> that's yeah, a whole I, other conversation, I'm, I guess. I'm kind of curious, how do you create the separation in your mind on that topic in particular? How do you make sure they're, I mean, so much of what you're saying and these preferences, particularly political preferences, yeah, aren't supported by the scriptures. Yeah. And yet these are still people that have these ideas that are part of your spiritual community. What is there a way you rectify that in, in your head? Does that make sense? It does. It does. Well, first of all, if we look at the Bible as a record of history or some sort of, not, not, I, I don't take the Bible literally as some might put it. Mm -hmm. um, I try to take the Bible. I, I think it is authoritative. Uh, it is my primary authority, um, but there are books in the Bible that aren't meant to be taken quote unquote, literally like the song of songs. It's not, it's meant to be taken as poetry. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, there are others that are a little bit closer to what we would think of as history, but they didn't have the academy, you know, all of the universities to define this is good history and this is how you write history and this is how you do history. So they weren't even the histories, kings and, and you know, uh, chronicles, they, they weren't abiding by the same rules that we would. So you have to take it in its context. Who were the folks who were writing it down to whom they were writing it for? But all that to say, if you look at the prophets in, in, in the Bible, they were more often than not talking to the people of God, or as we would think of it, the church or the people of Israel. They were talking to the, the people of their community, of their faith and, and family. And they, they weren't so much talking to Babylon. They weren't so much talking to Persia. They were talking more often than not among themselves. So, and why did they feel, why did Isaiah feel a need to speak to the people of Israel? Why did Jesus feel a need to talk to Jews? His primary audience were the Jews. Why was that necessary? Because again and again and again, from the very moment in the story where, you know, the Jews uh, were rescued from Egypt and, and they heard the voice of God and they saw all these miracles, they were, they were stumbling and, 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 you know, falling all over themselves again and again and again. So they needed to be spoken to. They needed to have prophets. So this, the idea that the church, in particular, the American church, or even more broadly speaking, anybody who might identify as a Christian nowadays, the idea that we're, we're somehow off base, it's not like we're completely sanctified. We're all human beings. So I, I think that we need to have prophets from within the church. I think we need to have truth tellers from within the church. Hey, you know, you might not be worshiping a golden calf, or in some cases they actually are, or a golden trump, you know, but, but you are thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is, this is what you're putting before God. This is what you're putting before the word of God. And, and we, you know, I kind of half jokingly say it about the, the golden Trump, but like, you know, you can, you can turn to almost 
any page in the Bible and it testifies against the words, actions, and character of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, so to the extent that we're elevating this person as a leader, as, as even trying to rationalize and saying he's no, he's more like one of the kings from the histories that isn't a Christian, but he's helping the Christian. I'm like, what, what, the, what are you doing? The, the mental gymnastics that it takes for you to see that, you know, just starting with like, what is good? You know, what's a, what are virtues? What's the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These things Donald Trump has none of. You know, what, what is good? Love is good. You know, what's the one, one of the few imperatives to that, that we love one another? And what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. You know, a guy like Donald Trump is, is on the wrong end of all of that stuff. So the idea that we're elevating him as someone who will fight for us, and that's how we're justifying it. No, no, no. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You just put something before God, before God's word. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that we need, we need prophets from, not that I'm a prophet, not that I'm, you know, sure. I, I don't have special, any sort of special anointing, but I do think to be fair, I do think that the idiots and the assholes <laughs> get, get a lot more press. Uh, you know, I, I also think it's fair to say that like, look, something as, as wide ranging that includes as, as many Christ, American Christians as a Southern Baptist convention corporately has it really, really wrong. But, you know, we can look to the Beth Moores and the Russell Moores and the David French's and the people within that are more explicitly religious leaders, as well as people that are in culture that are taking, taking arrows left and right that are ostracized, that are canceled, if you will, because I think they have, they are true to their faith and their, their theology, but they also see where some of those discrepancies are and are willing to pay the price for those convictions. So, yeah, yeah. I I don't think it's a simple answer, but that's, that's the best I can, I can give you. Yeah, no, it was a tough question. Um, but you brought up discrepancies and, and you mentioned this word nuance in your podcast intro, and I would love to move the conversation towards that and really exploring nuance. So at one point in your life, you were both a stockbroker by day and a theater guy <laughs> by night. Yeah. I'm going to guess those environments created somewhat of a political dichotomy. How did spending time with each of these groups shape your political ideologies? And did it give you a sense of empathy and understanding for nuance? I always dug both. And I dug being a part of, as well as a little bit different from both of those communities. And going forward into this day, I have my church friends, but I, one of my main businesses that I've had for since 99 is, is an entertainment focused business. So my entertainment friends are very, very different than my church friends and vice versa. But back then I knew that I was the only guy showing up for the, the class or the workshop or the rehearsal with my white button down collar, you know, with my hair slicked back still from the day, (laughs) you know, I was also the only one, if you'll excuse me being blunt, but I was one of the few guys that wasn't going out for hookers and blow at night (laughs) from wall street. I was going to a theater. Um, but I, I felt that I had good friends who kind of dug that guys, guys on wall street who kind of dug that I was going to a theater and, you know, people that I was going to the theater with that dug that, you know, I, I had a suit and tie on during the day. You know, my teacher referred to me, there was this movie that Oliver Stone made called Wall Street and he called me Bud Fox, the, you know, 
Hey, look, he was an Italian. Bud Fox, hey, what, what the fuck are you doing? What, what is this? The Bud Fox. You're you playing a character? What are you doing? Sell me some stock, motherfucker. He's a, he, that's what, <laughs> sorry, I'm cursing now. That's a, Go ahead. You know. <laughs> but that, that's what, what is this? You're doing some acting? Uh, my cigarette does better acting than you. My God, Bud fucking Fox. <laughs> I love this. I love this. Did your, did those two separate groups or the groups that you have today mingle? Did you um, bring them together? And if so, I would love to understand some of the behaviors of the ones that got along the best versus the ones that didn't get along very well. Well, I can tell you more about in, in my, later in my uh, life, in, in my adult life, because the worlds of enter, the entertainment industry and you know American evangelicalism are much further apart. And I would have, I would have either in, intense aversion to the the others. You know, for example, I remember I went to a, a poker game. So, by the way, so I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus lived, died, and rose again. I I believe in the Bible. I believe all that stuff. But I'm a Christian who curses, plays plays poker, and I drink. You know, so <laughs> it is. I don't find any inconsistency there, truly. And we we can talk about that. But that's you know. Um, but I was at this poker game. It was uh, entertainment, mostly entertainment industry friends. And it was a Saturday night. Came comes to about midnight, 1230. I'm like, oh, guys, I got to wake up early. We're going to church tomorrow morning. So I'm going to cash in and, and call it a night. And uh, I couldn't leave because the person, this gal sitting next to me was just giving me the business. She's she's like, why do you people block, you know? I'm like, first of all, you lost me at you people. Like, like, is that, I, I just, my hackles went up and I was just like, why do you people? And I think it was already, it might've been late 2015, 2016, but it was already clear that Donald Trump was emerging as, as a, a serious candidate. And not only that, that a lot of Christians were embracing him. Why do all you people, how can you, you people this and that about Donald Trump? I'm like, first of all, you lost me at you people. But second of all, he, he's not my guy. Like he's, he's not my guy. So I, the, I don't feel any need to defend that, which I do not believe. I, I have no, I have no compulsion or, or, or feelings that, that I need to explain this to you because you're starting from a place of prejudice, you know? And uh, it, it wasn't uh, to say it wasn't a productive conversation is, is, is an understatement because it, it wasn't entered into in good faith. It wasn't entered into in an intellectually honest way. And because she came in with her dukes up, I, I had, I didn't display the uh, nonviolent resistance that, that Jesus or um, Dr. King or even Mahatma Gandhi would advocate, but I, I did, that was, that, that's, that was a common refrain that, that I found myself being asked or forced to defend something that I just didn't believe based on, based on these perceptions that were way off base. Mm -hmm. And listen, some of them, I, as I just described, it went on a screed about, you know, Trump and how the Bible can testify against him. Uh, it, it's fair. So I think the best I got, the, the best that came out of that was like, look, I understand why you feel that way. And, and I, I feel largely the same way. But here's what I found, <laughs> you know, that that 
to start off with generalizations, mischaracterizations, and demonizations, vilifications, is, is just not, we're not going to make things better if that's, if that's the terrain that we're fighting on. I don't know if she heard me, but at the very least, we were able to have conversations in the future. I was able to be in the same room with her again in the future without feeling like she wanted to strangle me. Um, but there are other conversations I've had, like in 2000, I think it was four, maybe 2006. It was um, Prop 8 was a big thing here in California. It was the gay marriage bill. And frankly, I had come to an evolution. I, I, my, my thinking evolved on that because even though I was still grappling with the theology on it, and there are certain things that, that are pretty hard to get around that, that the, what the Bible says about homosexuality, I, at the very least, I had come to the conclusion that like, listen, I, I got to figure out what the Bible's really saying and what the context is. I don't know, because I know a lot of my friends from church think this is the end of civilization as we know it. If, if two people who love each other get married and, you know, that, that they think that's the end of civilization. I thought that, listen, I happen to believe in the Bible, so I got to work that out for myself. But my friend who wants to marry somebody he loves doesn't believe in the Bible. And we live in America. We live in a pluralistic society. So at the very least, like what I do know is if we pass this Prop 8 thing and it's illegal for, for gay people to get married, I do know, I do know for a fact that every friend that I have that's gay that might want to think about getting married legally, if we pass this, they're not going to wake up and say, oh, it's illegal to get married. Oh, it must be wrong to be gay. Oh, and if it's wrong to be gay, I better become a Christian. Like this was just the dumbest thing that I had ever, like it, it just, it didn't make sense to me. So to have these conversations and I was as I was arriving at these sorts of conclusions, I was able to have the most productive conversations, you know, and one in particular, he, I had it, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's gay. Um, and, and he really challenged me. He said, well, what does it say in the Bible? I said, well, let's look, <laughs> you know, like let's open it up. And two, two parts in particular, one was Titus. One was, I want to say first Timothy might've been, I want to say first Timothy might be second Timothy. Anyway, it's like this list of um, the writer of the, the letter is listing this behavior or, or evidence of, of a fallen world, right? And a lot of translations include in both of those lists, homosexuality. Um, later on, I, I started learning a little bit of the language and I, I found that uh, sexual immorality is probably a better way to describe it. But as I understood back then, homosexuality, but I, in both of these lists, I'm reading them. I'm like, oh man, I'm guilty of this one, that one, that one. Mm -hmm. And my, you know, I, I came to the conclusion with my buddy that I was talking to. I'm like, first of all, it was cool that he, he um, allowed me to open up the Bible and actually that read scripture cool. with me. That was cool. He was, he was indulging me, but it was cool that we could have it uh, We could find some common ground. And even if he just looked at it as literature, ancient from antiquity or whatever, it was cool that we were, he was, he was indulging me on that level, but also I was realizing that, holy cow, like I'm guilty ways than you are. I know my, he's a, he's a really good, good guy. So um, that, that, that was an interesting conclusion that I arrived at that like, ugh, even if it does say this about homosexuality, I, I got some things to work on, man. You're a better man than me, <laughs> you mm. know? So that's a productive conversation. You know, I love that you got that to that conclusion too. And you actually did a really great job showcasing what you shouldn't do. You people, I think is, is yeah. one maybe great 
flag or, you know, caution out there that you might be going down the wrong path if that yeah. word comes up or that phrase comes up. And then also this curiosity and exploring that that your friend um, asked and, and kind of indulged on you with and, and you came to the similarities. So I would love to dive into a little bit more of a personal story. Your middle child made the decision to stay unvaccinated. I would love for you to explain that decision-making process. And I'm actually really curious what you learned by watching your son go through that decision process. Well, the biggest thing I learned is that I went about it in the wrong way, Mm. especially in the beginning. And uh, in particular, what, what was easy for me to do, it was a trap that I fell into, is I thought that deploying shame and, and harassment, if you stood on solid moral ground, were, were effective tactics that, that, would, that would persuade someone. If you are right, if you are morally correct, then you, you can deploy all kinds of, of emotional, moral, uh, intellectual weaponry, uh, and, and that that is all going to be effective in, in winning this person over. And that's just not the case, especially with certain people. So different people respond to different things. So understanding them, but more often than not, like with my son, what happened was that the truth is he, he was he was on the fence about the possibility of taking the vaccine early on when they were first being rolled out. But his, his initial stance was, I'm not going to take it early, partly because I just, I feel like I'm young and it's, I'm not really prone to, to getting really sick, uh, but also because these things were developed really fast. So that's what he was saying. I wasn't necessarily hearing it. I was just hearing, and, and everybody around him was hearing that he hadn't gotten back vaccinated yet. Um, so he was, he was actually open to it. But he he got to a place where he's like, at the very least, I want to wait for FDA approval. But by the time the FDA approval had happened, so many people close to him in, in our family were downright abusive towards him, made him feel dumb and irresponsible and, and wrong and evil. All these things shamed him and harassed him to the point where he's like, fuck all of you. Like now. I understand a lot of folks might hear that response that my son had to that, to the shaming and stuff, be like, well, that's immature. Yeah. If you do, you know, doing the right thing is still doing the right thing, regardless of whether somebody, you know, makes fun of you for it. Um, so it wasn't necessarily perhaps the most mature reaction, but you have to admit it's an understandable one mm-hmm. that the, the thing that became the focus for him was the combat was people treating him in such a way that was flatly unkind. And, and it, it didn't give him the benefit of thinking clearly about the, the actual issue itself. What, what it became was thinking about his adversary in this battle and defending himself and his own honor and his own self sense of, of right and wrong and um, who, who he was as a person, a good or bad person, that, that became the focus. Um, so I, I let it lie. I, I made a case, I think right around July 4th. Yeah, it was right around July 4th because I had, I had a similar conversation. It wasn't nearly as um, adversarial 
because it, he's a friend, but he wasn't terribly close to me. So um, he said, yeah, you know, uh, uh, he, he's kind of not, not old, but an old, older than me. Um, so I guess that's old. <laughs> anyway, uh, he said, I, I, we saw each other for the first time in about a year because of all the, you know, lockdowns and everything. So it was great to see everybody and vaccines came up. It was right before the week before July 4th. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get it because listen, if I, if I get the, if I get the Rona, I got a 99 point something percent chance of getting, getting through it and then I'll be immune and then it'll be all good. So he's like, I like my chances and I don't really buy into all this stuff anyway. I'm like, yeah, uh, okay. You know, and in a group of like however many people, eight or 10 or 12 people, it wasn't really a conversation that we were going to get, be able to dive deep into, <laughs> you know? So meanwhile, his wife, uh, less than a week later, his wife calls, uh, she, she, we have this group text for a group of friends of ours. And she says, um, he's, um, he's sick and he won't go to the hospital. I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. And we were all concerned too, because we were all in the same room together less than a week prior. And, uh, a day or so after that, it was a Thursday. She said, could some of you guys text him and, and tell him to at least go to, to emergency room or something? So finally, by Friday, he went to the hospital, but they brought him directly into critical, uh, critical what, what do they call it? The, the critical care thing? Yeah. Um, Saturday, he was on a ventilator and literally Sunday, he died. Wow. So that's when I had the last conversation with Jackie boy, my, uh, the older of my two boys. I have three kids, a uh, daughter and two sons. And um, I said, listen, this is what happened, Jack. Uh, and I, I just want you to listen to me. And I promise I, I know where your head's at and your heart's at right now. So I promise I'm going to say what I'm going to say. And then I'm going to leave you alone about it. So I told him what happened with my friend. Um, and subsequently, I had two other friends. Once Delta was like really raging, I had two other friends. Same thing. Anti-vax. Um, all three actually pro-Trump as well. Uh, not so coincidentally. But I lost three friends. And one actually was earlier on, but, um, anyway, uh, I let it lie. And then a few months after that FDA approval, I think that was in August or maybe September finally got the FDA approval. So I said, Jack, can we talk about this again? And he, he, at that time, things had settled down a bit, at least emotionally, they weren't as heated so we could have a conversation about it. And I, I had come to some understanding of how I, I had personally dealt with it. I was part of, you know, the dog pile and the rabbit kind of a thing. Um, and I, I just think that was a mistake. And at least I, and the way I approached him this time wasn't necessarily, I, I did listen, I care about the kids. So obviously, so I want, I believe that the vaccines are effective. So I want him to get a vaccine. And I believe not only that, that it, it's the right thing to do because you know, if he's going to be around my parents, elderly, immunocompromised, whatever, he owes that to them. You know, so I do, I would love for him to get the vaccine. And we, it, it arose just recently, uh, three fam, my three best friends, our whole families got together over the holidays and he was the only one that wasn't vaccinated, but there are other ways that, that we dealt with it. Anyway, the conversation was, help me understand my question to him, help me understand. Mm -hmm. And that's when I understood his thought process and his decision-making process. I didn't agree with it all. I didn't agree with his, you know, his response, but I understood it better. 
And merely by understanding standing it better, as opposed to approaching it from an adversarial, immediately adversarial point of view, uh, I was able to I was able to get back into the conversation with him, and I was able to re redeem that strain of the relationship. And I think that's really important. It gives it gives you a fighting chance, you know. And uh, I think he knows that. He knows that if I, it's not to say that I'll never, I'll never take a really firm ground or, or really sometimes if I have to be combative or even have a, a, an inkling of, of combativeness on something, he knows that it will be, it will be worth it, that I'll be picking my spots on that, you know? And yeah, so I, I think I earned his trust, um, whether it's on, it might not be in the vaccine issue because I, I might have lost not credibility with him, but, but I lost my right in a way to have that level of credibility with him on this particular issue. But there may be other issues that, that going forward, I will have some buy-in from him. Sure. You know, so I, I don't know if any of this is making sense, no, but no, I think again, that's, talk about nuance. That's a perfect story to illustrate something I was trying to demonstrate and, and, you know, your son was essentially ostracized by the adversaries and had to turn around and there's only one place he could really turn and there's his allies arms wide open. And so many people that, you know, aren't vaccinate or, you know, aren't vaccinated and, you know, they get the opportunity to continue to explore that line of thinking with him while the, I, I'm, I'm just going to make it polar the other side um, really lost their opportunity to, to convince him or to share some, some insight or wisdom around it. And I think so often we, we do that, especially in the topics of politics and religion, and it's really challenging, but I commend you for how you mended the relationship. I would love to explore that a little bit more. Obviously this last year and a half, two years has created separations with inside of families and friendships. If we have somebody in mind, we're listening right now, and we have somebody in mind that we'd love to mend a relationship with, what do you think would be a good way to approach that? That's a big question. So there are a couple of phrases that come to mind, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, but I use the phrase with my son, help me understand, a business partner of mine, uh, does that sometimes, and and we make fun of him for it. Like, donkey's going all help me understand on us. Uh oh, it's look such, out! It's such a good phrase, though. I think it is really, really good wording. Yeah, yeah. Because if, if you're sincere about it, then you can you can get inside of their thinking, right? right. You have to be and careful so about the tone and the messaging you're sharing. I mean, using specific words and phrases is one half of that equation, but the way you deliver it and the intent behind you delivering it to is honestly the more important half. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's a, it's a diagnosis really. It's a, first of all, it'll open up your own understanding and, and you'll often find that whatever the point of tension is, isn't what you thought it was. So it, it really is helpful. You learn something, you help, it helps you diagnose. So if you go into it saying, help me understand why the hell you blah, blah, blah. You yeah, know, that's exactly. not really, that's still, why you, you just, people. <laughs> yeah, why you people. Um, so that's not really helpful. But 
help me understand is more of a human connection point. And you, you get to have, you, you get to kind of go into a little bit more of the detail of what they're thinking. And there might be aspects that don't need to be dealt with. Uh, there might be aspects that you won't be able to find common ground, but there might be other pieces of this where you, you can find some common ground, you know? And, and, and that's, that's the other, so help me understand. And two is most often you are not going to be able to change someone's mind by 180 degrees. They're not going to go from someone who's voted Republican their entire lives to somebody who's voted Democrat, you know, for the rest of their, or, or vice versa. You're not going to be able to go from vax to anti-vax in, in one conversation, not any particular issue or a whole worldview. It, but you can often have one degree of, of influence. You, you can often help someone open their understanding or come to a new conclusion by with one by one step, right? But the thing is, when that's done effectively, it almost requires you as the person, the other person in the dialogue, to be open to the possibility of adding one degree of nuance to your own point of view. Mm, so I think a lot of folks get frustrated because I, I have really good friends and I feel for them because all they see, like they'll turn on the news for five minutes, they'll get frustrated. Oh, things are going to crap and I can't do anything about it. And the world's this and the world. No, you, you, can't, you can't change the world in a day or even a presidential term. You, you just, you can't. You, you can't, and to, to what I'm saying, you can't even change one person's point of view 180 degrees, but, but you, can have, you can have one point of human connection with one person and maybe have one degree of influence on them. And that, that's changing the world, right? Mm. Mm. And, and I'll, one other phrase I'll give on, on this topic, and it, it helps you get there. So help me understand, and somebody gave me one. It was actually a friend of Hal's that gave me this a long time ago. It might be like a Dale Carnegie thing. Um, and, and again, I don't mean to make it sound simple or cheesy or anything like that, but feel felt found is really helpful. Once you get into help me understand and you do find one of those things that you don't have to deal with um, and, and aren't, he's not going to move on, but maybe one of those things that there is some movability on. Oh, I never thought of it that way. I understand why you'd feel. I, I understand why you feel that way. Like with my son, he's he's when he described getting attacked and and bullied and and harassed. Wow, I I can totally understand why you'd feel that way. I would have felt the same way if I was, and I have felt the same way when I've been in that position. And then here's what I found, you know. So. I, I understand how you feel. I would have felt and have felt the same way in similar situations. Here's what I found, you know? So help me understand, feel, felt, found. It's a really, I don't know, it's, it's more relational. It's not transactional, it's relational. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? No doubt, no doubt. I think that was a really good prescriptive method there. Um, and, and really, really helps me in, in that sense as well. Corey, as we're concluding this conversation, I have one more thing on this topic that I want to cover, and that's respectfully disagreeing. Because there's going to be moments when you don't agree and you need to stand up for your beliefs. What actionable advice do you have around that topic in particular? 
Oh man, I might have a completely different answer if you ask me tomorrow, let alone next <laughs> month or next year. But maybe how what, you're feeling at the moment too. <laughs> well, yeah. What, what what immediately came to mind again is another major failure on my part. I, I'm I remember moments with my daughter who's 20 now, when my my disposition in my encounter with her was, well, you're wrong. So that's the truth that you're wrong, you know, and, and it just didn't go well. Um, as opposed to, as opposed to, there are some things that, to your point, that are worth fighting for. Um, you know, if someone is um, self-destructively abusing drugs or alcohol or something, that, you know, that's, that's fight for the ones you love their lives, fight for their lives, right? So there are some of those, but man, so many things that we think we need to fight for, we really don't, you know? And I'd rather have you at my table than have you apart from us and, and forming this caricature of what we think of you and what you think of us. And it, it's not going to go anywhere, you know, it's, but, but maintaining that point of connection and accepting someone's peculiarities, if you want to think of it that way, you know, Oh, this person voted for Trump. Oh, well, he, <laughs> you know, that's one of his peculiarities. Now, listen, there are certain things that I do have a harder time for. If I know a lot of people that I love and respect that voted for Trump at least once, if not twice. Um, I do have a harder time with the whole stop the steal. I do have a harder time with people who are pretending that the insurrection didn't happen, that it was, it was a nothing burger, that they were let in and they were peace. Like I have a hard time with that. So I do have my limitations when it comes to this stuff in the political realm. Uh, but I think, I think there aren't as many categorical plant your flag protect this ground things that we think so why don't we just hang out and have a have a glass of wine you know why, why, why don't we just why don't we talk about the Mets yeah exactly yeah <laughs> no know? and I, I mean I'd love to get the conversation and and obviously political and religious conversations have more maybe more to lose or more impact but if we could discuss some of these topics with inside of those, like we would discuss a healthy sports rivalry, um, you know, maybe not Yankees, Red Sox, but Mets Cardinals, we can sit there and debate <laughs> and, and, and have good fun and poke at each other. But yeah. at the end of the day, we can sit across together. We can have a good meal. We can have a laugh and we can talk about something else as well. And it's not impacting our overall relationship. I'd love to get there at, um, with, with our political conversations as well. Because we, there's other work that we can do together, other good work that we can do together. You know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan really disagreed on tax policy, really disagreed on foreign policy, really disagreed on just about everything, but they got really good work done together. Mm -hmm. and, and it required different points of view to find, you know, I think it was, um, you know, 80%, getting 80% of, of what I want isn't getting 0% of it. I forget how Reagan put it, but it was basically like, I, I can get a lot of what I want here, you know, and, and compromise is not failure. Compromise is not losing the war. Sometimes we shouldn't even think of it that way. Sometimes it's collaboration, hmm. you know, yes. more often than not, if you're, if you're open to it, it's actual collaboration. 
So I don't know if you're going to get the inglorious MTG in the same room with AOC. Like, I, I just don't know. But you can certainly get Kinzinger and Cheney in the room with AOC. They're not going to find a, he- a lot of common ground, but they can get in the room. They can definitely get, you know, Ch- Cheney and Kinzinger can definitely get in the room with Spamberger for sure. So I, I think there's a lot more overlap here if we allow those voices to be the more prominent ones. You know, if it's all battle, if it's all, well, he's my enemy and there is no common ground with my enemy. I, I don't know. I can't do any business with you. But if you disagree with me on like, I'm not a big fan of min- minimum wage, just throwing one thing out there. Um, as a small business owner, because I can take better care of my, my, the, the people that are on our team than what is prescripted by folks who've never balanced a checkbook, let alone a PL. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. But I'm sure that I know I, what I do know, having gone before the LA County Board of Supervisors to talk about this, is that we share common goals. So if we share common goals about people having a, a healthy livelihood, about folks being able to, you know, live in LA County with, with the, the opportunities that we're creating in our company. You know, I, I agree with all this stuff. Uh, so finding our way there, that's, you know, let's stay in that conversation as opposed to thinking that, oh, he's against minimum uh, $15 minimum wage. He's the enemy. You can't be in the room. We have to throw rocks at you. You're a terrible person. What are you, anti-vax? All you people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so... Uh, Corey, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm trying to bite my tongue right now to not ask a follow-up question because I already see we're over the hour mark here. Oh, wow. Um, okay. It's been such a blast. Maybe we'll have to do a follow-up conversation, especially if this spurs some further debate. But um, if people want to explore a little bit more about you and dive into this topic a little bit more, you've got an awesome podcast. Why don't you tell the listeners about your podcast and where they can find it? Thank you so much. It's called Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. And the talking is an apostrophe and killing is an apostrophe. So talking politics and religion without killing each other. We're on all the apps, Apple and Spotify and all that. Uh, We do have a website, politicsandreligion.podbean.com. Politics and all spelled out, politicsandreligion.podbean.com. And all the socials, we're at tpandrpod, at tpandrpod on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. So, yeah. And if you didn't catch that, just open up the show notes right now, scroll down, you'll see more of more of Corey and you can click on any of those links there. Corey, my final question for you, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16 week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Okay. So the short answer is the class would be how to get your first gig and then how to thrive and build your career once you land that gig. Mm, tell me more. Oh, okay. You want me to tell you more? Okay. <laughs> so I think that a lot of, the, first of all, it's not often covered in colleges and, and the advice that kids are getting in, in whether it's a local community college or a big expensive university isn't great advice. It's not. So first of all, the ways to get that gig is by, it actually does tie into some of the themes that we're talking about. It's by taking inventory of your circle of influence. Even if you're a college student, if you really start to take account of who you know and who you've met along the way, whether it's a professor or someone who came in to give a special lecture or someone you encountered at a, um, an, uh, an event or something, you know a lot of people. 
So take inventory of your own circle of influence. And then by doing so and accounting for that, whether it's through tools like LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever, Instagram and Twitter, you, you know a lot of people. And then reach out to those folks in a relational and not a transactional way. So again, it does kind of rhyme with some of the themes that we were talking about. What I mean by that is if somebody's doing cool work in an industry that you're interested in and they seem like a cool person, then, then hit them up and be like, hey, you know, you came to my class and I was really intrigued by what you said. I looked into some of your work and wow, that invention was awesome or whatever. Like just say something nice without totally kissing their ass. Tell them a little bit about who you are. It's a three, like the outreach is broken down into three parts. Why are you reaching out? Like what's cool about them without kissing their ass? Who are you in, you know, one or two sentences max? And then what do you want? But what you want is, hey, give me a gig, give me a project, give me work, give me money. No, don't do that. Avoid that altogether. Because that'll just, that's transactional. What's relational is I would love to buy you a cup of coffee. Hmm. I just want to pick your brain. You're, you're who I want to be in 20 years, something like that. I would love to pick your brain. Can I buy you lunch? Can I buy you coffee? Can, can we hop on a Zoom one day? Just that's what, so what you're, what you're closing for so you say something nice, you tell them who you are, and then you close. But what you're closing for is the beginning of a relationship. A relationship is like a ladder. It's like you take one step up, up the first rung. That's the first rung. You know? and, and I think what you'll find is that you'll get a much higher response than putting your resume on a job board. It's just a resume. It's just a transaction in that instance. But if you are hitting up people you know, and then eventually... Your, your secondary um, circle of influence in this way, whether it's on IM on Twitter or an email or whatever, there, there are so many different ways to reach out to people. I think you'll have a much higher percentage. Not to say everybody's going to get back to you, but I think you know to have 10 or 20% of the people that you reach out to in that regard is from, from what I've seen and how I've counseled folks over the years, it's a much higher percentage than that. So hope that... Mm -hmm. I think, hope that helps. No, I think that's extraordinary. I think that'd be a very valuable class. I think that approach is the right approach as well. And people are typically looking for a shortcut. And that seems like such like a long, long play. But I think people would also be surprised how quickly some relationships can develop as well. I mean, yeah. you and I were introduced through a mutual friend as well. And yeah. here you are on the podcast. And I did my due diligence and making sure that I would deliver some questions and I made sure that you knew that I was serious about this and hopefully we continue to build that relationship. So at any point in time, I could reach out and be like, Hey, Corey, could you provide any support or help around this area? You can continue to do that. And, um, you know, if you just have these coffees or these lunches or even these zooms, sometimes you you'll offer to pay and they won't even, they won't, they don't care about that. They're like, okay, starving college kid. Don't yeah. worry. Like, yeah. I like the intent. I, I really appreciate that. Let's do coffee. It's on me though. Like I've had just so many amazing mentors, especially early on in my career. Um, and I can tell as maybe you're shifting from mentee to mentor too, and wanting to give back. This is something you're really passionate about. And you're speaking from like how some of the, some of the people that have reached out to you do it best. So yeah. I, I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. And Man, it's been such a blast um, getting to know you and, and having you on the podcast. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the conversation, Justin. It's 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 you've made me think a lot and recount a lot. So it's um, yeah, it's been refreshing, and I really I just appreciate you giving me the time. 
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.